Good evening. I'm Marcus Leader, and I would like to invite you on a journey of discovery as I pull back the veil and give you a glimpse of the multiverse through the eyes of a Toltec shaman. So sit back, relax, turn up the volume, and turn down the lights. You're now listening to The Shaman's Brew. This is a song that uh, we wrote for a late night talk show radio host, Art Bell. And we had a, a great time writing this one. Midnight in the desert Shooting stars across the sky It's a magical journey To take a sun arrive Filled with the longing Searching for the truth Will we make it till tomorrow? Will the sun shine on And we're listening Ooh, we're listening to you That was Midnight in the Desert by Crystal Gale, a, uh, a special song she composed for Art Bell of Coast to Coast AM. In this week's show, I'm going to be talking with you about the power of intention and the proper way to build it and project it to its target. 
This will tie in perfectly with my News from the Lab segment because I will be discussing and presenting evidence from an experiment I conducted with the help of a colleague regarding the projection and detection of human intention with my transdimensional transceiver from a thousand miles away. I would like to start the show off by replaying a segment from a show I did a couple of years ago about the power of intention in prayer. Some of you may have heard this in a past show, but most of you have not. Even if you have heard it, I would advise using it as a refresher because I have uh, added uh, pluses to it like uh, sound backgrounds to improve the quality of the show. And it contains a lot of good information that you, uh, you really would behoove you to, uh, to consider. So sit back and relax as I once again pull back the veil and share with you the secrets of projecting the force of intention. Now I laid me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, protect us from all of Satan's evil temptations. Grant, O Goddess, thy protection, and in protection, strength, and in strength, understanding, and in understanding, knowledge, and in knowledge, the knowledge of justice, and in the knowledge of justice, the love of it, and in the love of it, the love of all existences, and in the love of all existences, the love of the God and Goddess. God, Goddess, and all goodness, so mote it be. Gichimanatu, creator of all the universe, I give thanks for the gift of life, and to the beautiful Earth Mother for sustaining that life and the lives of my brothers and sisters. God, if you get me out of this, I promise you on my soul that I will give up sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Well, on second thought, I'd like to keep the rock and roll, if that would be okay with you. Just please save my butt. Yes, indeed. Prayer. One of the most common and misunderstood acts of the human race. Prayers of all types are repeated by billions of people every single day. And yet, research indicates that more than 90% of these people do not know how to pray, nor do they understand the mechanics of prayer. More than 90%! For something that's been done by humankind for that often for thousands of years, you would think that they'd have it down pat by now. Repetitive prayers, like the children's prayer, or the proverbial saying of grace at dinner ta at the dinner table lose their meaning with each repetition until it becomes nothing more than a mindless act of recital to soothe our minds and consciousness. The concept of what these prayers are for is totally lost and meaningless to most people. I know the first time I was forced to say the children's nighttime prayer, now I lay me down to sleep, I became horrified 
when I got to the part about dying before I wake. And uh, the nightly re nightly reminders to reinforce my fear didn't help any. It took me a long time to be able to go to sleep without fear of dying. Then you have the Bible-thumping messengers of the Lord that speak more of sin and the evil Satan than they do of God and love. Oh, and then there's my favorite misdirection of all, the let's make a deal prayer, where God is invited to come on down and save your rear end in exchange for finally taking responsibilities for your own actions. <laughs> Give me a break. All these are nothing more than meaningless mindless recitals of misdirected intention driven by desperation, ignorance, and laziness. In many Native American and pagan prayers, we finally see an organized structure that has not fallen prey to the whitewash of mindless repetition. But this structure, in any case, is still lacking the punch needed to reach the target entity, be it God, Goddess, creator or even spirit guide. In all honesty, the closest methods to proper prayer technique is found in the Buddhist and Hindu religions. You see, you can have the most devoted, sincere, and poetically structured prayer in the world, but unless you know how to deliver it to the target, how to make it ride on the carrier waves of the universe, then all you have is a well-structured group of words that fall upon deaf ears. It's sad to think that most people pray their hearts out assuming that they're being heard loud and clear and that the Almighty will listen to every spoken word, whisper, or thought, including the mindless repetition of nonsensical thoughts that we randomly generate. The fact is that like anything else in our lives, we must put out the proper effort to acquire the desired results which is a good thing for it teaches us not to be lazy and not to rely on others and to take responsibilities for our own lives. So what then is the secret to proper prayer? How do you get the attention and communicate with deity? With impeccable intention. It matters not what religion you follow or how many times you repeat your prayers. If you want to get the attention of your deity then you have to speak in the universal language of visualization and send it off with a punch of pure intention from the very core of your being. And equally important, you must know where to direct your prayer. When you recite your words of prayer, don't rely on the words alone. See what you want to happen. See your request bestowed upon you. Or see an image in your mind of your great deity being honored and filled with your love. Next, you must raise your energy levels and believe with all your heart that your message will be heard. Feel the emotion raising within. Build it to a peak. And with all the willpower you can generate, blast your thoughts and images mixed with the impeccable desire and intent toward your target. This target being your deity. But where is this deity? What direction do you send your power prayer? If you send it to the heavens, or even worse in all directions, then you've squandered your efforts. This may surprise a lot of you, but you must send your prayers within. Deity is everywhere. 
It is not in a centralized location in the clouds or even on another plane of existence. It is all around you, and it is at its strongest within you. Reach not out to deity, but within. Praying this way takes effort and practice, but almost guarantees your voice among the gods. Intention is an awesome force and literally shapes the reality of our universe. I was taught a very powerful lesson regarding intention on one of my many field trips with my own shamanic teacher. He took me to an excursion one week several miles south of the border from Nogales, Arizona. I'm not sure exactly where we were because we had been driving for many hours at night so I could see no landmarks at all. The car came to a stop and I stepped out to see a most beautiful star-filled sky with the Milky Way flowing right through Sagittarius, my astrological birth sign. I was transfixed by the heavenly sight, especially since astronomy was my first love and my major in college. Then my fascination was interrupted by the smell of a campfire. Carlos and I looked to the east and saw a faint glow over the next hill and proceeded to hike in that direction through the chaparral. I did not know why we were there or what adventure lay in store for me, so I proceeded with a little trepidation fueled by excitement. The image on the other side of the hill was very surreal and carried an air of timelessness about it, with a feel of past, present, and future all rolled into one. Sitting cross-legged around a rolled-out blanket were five shaman, two of which were Yaqui Indians, and one Pima. The other two, I believe, were Mexican. Behind them was burning four small fires, and I could tell from the stars that they were situated north, east, south, and west of the shaman's circle, and about ten feet behind them. Carlos joined them in the circle and told me to sit directly six feet behind him, and I was to be silent as I was just a witness to what was about to take place. As I sat down where I was instructed, I noticed that wrapped in a blanket in the center of the circle was a small girl about four or five years old. Although she was in shadows, I got the impression that she was a very sick little girl. I asked Carlos to explain and he confirmed that the little girl was close to death and that the shaman had been summoned by her parents to heal her. Then he held a finger to his lips, giving me the signal to be silent. One of the Yaki shaman raised his hands over the little girl and chanted something. He looked as old as dirt, but moved with the agility of a cat. He stood and circled the girl three times, and then suddenly stopped and said something to the others, which caused them all to stand and gathered their items and turned to leave. I asked my teacher what was going on and he said that the old shaman who was leading the healing was told in a vision that the girl was meant to die. That it had been arranged by her own soul before she was born. I jumped to my feet in disbelief and ran over to the little girls who, whose eyes were half open and seemingly pleading for help. I felt so helpless at the moment I did not yet have the ability to heal anyone, 
and I could not force them to do it. Or could I? All I know is that I had to do something. How many of you could look into the eyes of a dying child and not try to help her? My only thought was to find a way to make the shaman, the shaman come back and proceed with the healing, but how could I do that? I called out to them, pleading for them to help her, and they just shook their heads sadly and turned and walked away. It was then that I felt something inside my abdomen stirring. I thought at first I was going to be sick, but then it changed and it felt like a rocket taking off and filling me with a surge of power. I yelled out to the departing shaman in a voice that shocked myself and seemed to echo through the small canyon. They all seemed to stop dead in their tracks at the same time without turning around. I yelled out to them, which is unusual for me, that they must heal this little girl and that the arrangement with her soul and whoever had been made a long time ago and was clearly being altered now by the fact that she had enough personal power to bring them here somewhere in the middle of the desert on this fateful night. I felt my words leaving my body not from my mouth but from my stomach just above my navel. Whatever I had said or done to change the mind of the shaman, it seemed to work and they returned to form the circle and started chanting and making hand gestures. This went on for at least two hours and during that time I must have blacked out or fell asleep because the next thing I remembered I was laying on the ground waking up with the sun in my eyes. I could not see very well, but I heard a strange sound. It was a sound of a little girl laughing and playing with her parents. I blocked the sun, and it was true. The same little girl that was dancing with death hours before was now laughing and running. My teacher nudged me in the ribs with his foot and said, Marcus, are you going to sleep all day? The shaman were nowhere in sight, and a little girl and the parents were getting into an old Chevy pickup to go home. We also left, and on the way home, Carlos explained to me that although I had no ability to heal the girl, I had brought about her healing through the persuasive powers of my intent, which had been driven by emotion and sheer determination. The shaman were so taken by the force of my intent that they... They took it as an omen to override the original agreement. To my knowledge, little Rosarita is still alive and well today. I will end this show now because I think the important points have been illustrated and now just need to be solidified in your mind without any more examples or explanations. Remember three key features to the power of prayer. Formulate the prayer with both words and visual images and set it firmly in your mind. Then summon up all the determination, desire, emotion, and willpower that you can. Then finally launch your prayer with all the intent within, through your higher self, and onto deity that dwells within us all. This is Marcus Leader saying thank you for listening. 
And may all your prayers be productive, powerful, and answered. Before we move on to news from the lab and my experiments and intention, I would like to do another shout-out to my all-time favorite heroes, George Norrie in Punnett and the legendary Art Bell of Coast to Coast AM. You guys have done more to help the paranormal community and paranormal talk radio than anyone else. Plus, you have uh, kept me company many a nights as I worked into the wee hours of the morning in the lab. This is my tribute to you. First time caller line, you are on the air. As it passed overhead, the stars and the full moon at the time went away. This is going to be something, 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 something. Ten after midnight on the starry satellite sky. I lie awake taking in the cover of talk Can't stop, did I hear that right? Live conversations Beaming out to us all in the dark Real life phone line on air experts One in the world, things are falling apart Coast to coast To the average Joe, it may be hard to tell Yeah, the truth is out there, ask God Bill, where Area 51, aliens and laser guns, or government ties to wars and lies, spinning right out of control, conspiracy radio. Wildcard line, you're on the air, huh? Conspiracy radio. I had an encounter with UFO back in 1977. Critics say how it's just a phase Don't you worry, it's days we'll end It's all hype when they spin it just right Making foes of the public friends They dare ask, what do you believe? A rumor's going bump in the night Cloak and dagger, media swagger The writing on the wall, is it wrong, is it right? Tell, oh well, Allison close Cause the truth is out there Ask God Bell, where Area 51 The aliens and laser guns Yes, government ties To wars and lies Spinning right out of control Conspiracy Radio was was uh, emitting very very strong light and um, it was a, a rough triangular wedge shape about the size of a football field no more than two or three hundred feet above the ground i heard it all who took the fall there's a strange smell in the air it's the devil you know or the devil you don't it's a threat you Hello. Oh. 
ties to wars and lies. Spinning right out of control. East of the Rockies, you are on the air. Well, the truth is out there. We had one in broad daylight that followed us well, about 45 minutes. Well, the truth is out there. How do you know, I mean, did you see the extraterrestrials? It shouldn't be still. My whole screen is just purple, right? Oh, all right, well, you became in contact with the extraterrestrials yourself in what manner? Mentally, uh, looking at our universe as a as a bubble, as a black bubble, and this black bubble was inside of a white, uh, huge white bubble, which was uh, considered the second dimension, pure white energy. All right, sir. Thank you very much. Take care. Well, one never knows. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. And now, news from the lab. A few weeks ago, myself and a colleague set out to conduct a very bold series of experiments involving the use of human intention to communicate through dimensional boundaries, much the same way that we theorize communications from the spirit world, such as EVPs or direct voice phenomenon, enter our reality. The experiment was suggested to me by a longtime friend. Danelle, who lives in Denver, Colorado. Danelle is an adept when it comes to the manipulation of human energy fields and her ability to build and project human intention are equal to or greater than anyone else I have ever known. You will uh, be hearing more about uh, Danelle very soon in an upcoming interview on this show on a different topic. Danelle proposed that we set up an experiment using my transdimensional transceiver to try to detect her projection of human intent to that device from her location 1,000 miles approximately from the lab. If you remember, the transdimensional transceiver is a special device I built that uses lasers that are modulated electronically with digital pulses to carry sounds through a vacuum uh, within a highly energized field. 
it is postulated that within this field, a spirit or entity would be able to modulate the carrier beam using a yet unknown technique that I suspect is similar to the energy of human intention. The thought of a living human trying to breach dimensional barriers using thought and intention was something that had not, I had never entertained until uh, Donnell uh, suggested it to me. And I have to admit, while it was a rather bold and intriguing experiment, I did not have uh, high expectations toward positive results. Much to my surprise and delight, my skepticism was totally unfounded. Not only was the experiment a uh, success, but the quality of sound captured was exceedingly high and unmistakable. Although we had only two sound samples captured in the 30-minute experiment, it was enough to consider the first initial experiment a complete success. I suspect that the reason there was only two short sound samples captured was because of the nature of the carrier wave I was transmitting through the device. It is my theory that certain harmonic frequencies when played in a closed environment interact with each other like a, um, like a combination lock affecting the surface of the veil or buffering zone that separates our dimension from that of spirit. A sympathetic resonance is then established by the pulse harmonics and I suspect that it makes the transference of energy from one dimensional system to another more conducive allowing this energy we call intention to interact with our senses as well as our electronic equipment. However, finding the right combination of harmonics that will open this dimensional lock is a uh, very difficult task. Consequently, I created a series of evolving modulations from seven different complex harmonic sounds. This means that there is a constant changing set of harmonics during the entire experiment. And during the two moments of sound capture, the combination of harmonics would have been perfect for opening energy portals. This means the key to a successful second experiment will be found in the isolation of those particular harmonic frequencies. The experiment was set up at a specific time and designed to last for 30 minutes during which time I would have the TDT or transdimensional transceiver operating with the evolving modulations pulsing through the laser. One important fact to uh, consider when listening to the following sound clips is that there is no microphone of any kind hooked up to the transdimensional transceiver. During the experiment, Danelle focused her thoughts and projected her intentions, but I was not aware of what she would be saying or doing at the time. The following is a shortened section of the sound captures, which in reality took place only about a minute apart, suggesting that the harmonic combination had been ideal during that part of the experiment. You will hear a short bell ring and then Danelle's voice say Mark, which is uh, the way she normally addresses me. I will play the clip twice to make sure you do not miss it. Thank you. 
did not hear this in real time, although I am sure I would have if the volume on the receiver side was up high enough. Since I was unaware of what Danelle was doing, the bell sound puzzled me until after she told me that she had started the ritual-like process with the ringing of a bell. She also called my name more than once during the experiment. I sent the, uh, the clip to her for her evaluation, and after comparing the frequency of the captured sound of the bell to the actual bell, she found that it matched. She also identified the voice as hers without a doubt. We will continue this line of experimenting in, in the future under even tighter control factors, and we'll be sure to keep you all updated as the results come in. We are going to continue now with a reading we started a couple weeks ago by a book written by my teacher, Dr. Carlos Castaneda, called The Teachings of Don Juan, A Yaqui Way of Knowledge. We're going to pick up uh, approximately where we left off a couple weeks ago and, uh, and run it through to the end of the show. Saturday, January 27th, 1962. As soon as I got to his house this morning, Don Juan told me he was going to show me how to prepare the smoke mixture. We walked to the hills and went quite away into one of the canyons. He stopped next to a tall, slender bush whose color contrasted markedly with that of the surrounding vegetation. The chaparral around the bush was yellowish, but the bush was bright green. From this little tree you must take the leaves and the flowers, he said. The right time to pick them is All Souls Day, El Dia de las Animas. We continued walking, and he picked three different flowers, saying they were part of the ingredients and were supposed to be gathered at the same time. But the flowers had to be put in separate clay pots and dried in darkness. A lid had to be placed on each pot so the flowers would turn moldy inside the container. He said the function of the leaves and the flowers was to sweeten the smoke mixture. We came out of the canyon and walked toward the riverbed. After a long detour, we returned to his house. Late in the evening, we sat in his own room, a thing he rarely allowed me to do, and he told me about the final ingredient of the mixture, the mushrooms. The real secret of the mixture lies in the mushrooms, he said. They are the most difficult ingredient to collect. The trip to the place where they grow is long and dangerous, and to select the right variety is even more perilous. There are other kinds of mushrooms growing alongside which are of no use. They would spoil the good ones if they were dried together. It takes time to know the mushrooms well in order not to make a mistake. Serious harm will result from using the wrong kind. Harm to the man and to the pipe. I know of men who have dropped dead from using the foul smoke. The first time you smoke, I will light the pipe for you. You will smoke all the mixture in the bowl and wait. The smoke will come. You will feel it. It will set you free to see anything you want to see 
Properly speaking, it is a matchless ally. But whoever seeks it must have an intent and a will beyond reproach. He needs them, because he has to intend and will his return, or the smoke will not let him come back. Second, he must intend and will to remember whatever the smoke allowed him to see. Otherwise, it will be nothing more than a piece of fog in his mind. Saturday, April 8, 1962. In our conversations, Don Juan consistently used or referred to the phrase man of knowledge, but never explained what he meant by it. I asked him about it. A man of knowledge is one who has followed truthfully the hardships of learning, he said. A man who has, without rushing or without faltering, gone as far as he can in unraveling the secrets of power and knowledge. Can anyone be a man of knowledge? No, not anyone. Then what must a man do to become a man of knowledge? He must challenge and defeat his four natural enemies. The enemies a man encounters on the path of learning to become a man of knowledge are truly formidable. Most men succumb to them. What kind of enemies are they, Don Juan? He refused to talk about the enemies. He said it would be a long time before the subject would make any sense to me. I tried to keep the topic alive and asked him if he thought I could become a man of knowledge. He said no man could possibly tell that for sure. Sunday, April 15, 1962. As I was getting ready to leave, I decided to ask him once more about the enemies of a man of knowledge. I argued that I could not return for some time, and it would be a good idea to write down what he had to say and then think about it while I was away. He hesitated for a while, but then began to talk. When a man starts to learn, he's never clear about his objectives. His purpose is faulty. His intent is vague. He hopes for rewards that will never materialize for he knows nothing of the hardships of learning. He slowly begins to learn, bit by bit at first, then in big chunks, and his thoughts soon clash. What he learns is never what he pictured or imagined, and so he begins to be afraid. Learning is never what one expects. Every step of learning is a new task, and the fear the man is experiencing begins to mount mercilessly, unyieldingly. His purpose becomes a battlefield, and thus he has stumbled upon the first of his natural enemies, fear, a terrible enemy, treacherous and difficult to overcome. It remains concealed at every turn of the way, prowling, waiting, and if the man, terrified in its presence, runs away, his enemy will have put an end to his quest. What will happen to the man if he runs away in fear? Nothing happens to him except that he will never learn. He will never become a man of knowledge. He will perhaps be a bully or a harmless, scared man. At any rate, he will be a defeated man. His first enemy will have put an end to his cravings. And what can he do to overcome fear? The answer is very simple. He must not run away. He must defy his fear, and in spite of it, he must take the next step in learning, and the next, and the next, he must be fully afraid, and yet he must not stop. That is the rule. And the moment will come when his first enemy retreats. But won't the man be afraid again if something new happens to him? No. Once a man has vanquished fear, he's free from it for the rest of his life. Because instead of fear, he's acquired clarity. A clarity of mind which erases fear, 
By then, a man knows his desires. He knows how to satisfy those desires. He can anticipate the new steps of learning, and a sharp clarity surrounds everything. The man feels that nothing is concealed. And thus he has encountered his second enemy, clarity. That clarity of mind which is so hard to obtain dispels fear, but also blinds. It forces the man never to doubt himself. It is like something incomplete. If the man yields to this make-believe power, he succumbs to a second enemy and will fumble with learning. He will be clear as long as he lives, but he will no longer learn or yearn for anything. But what does he have to do to avoid being defeated? He must do what he did with fear. He must defy his clarity and use it only to see. And the moment will come when he will understand that his clarity was only a point before his eyes. He will know at this point that the power he's been pursuing for so long is finally his. He can do with it whatever he pleases. His ally is at his command. His wish is the rule. He sees all that is around him, but he has also come across his third enemy, power. A man at this stage hardly notices his third enemy closing in on him, and suddenly, without knowing, he will certainly have lost the battle. His enemy will have turned him into a cruel, capricious man. Will he lose his power? No, he will never lose his clarity or his power. Well, what then will distinguish him from a man of knowledge? A man who is defeated by power dies without really knowing how to handle it. Power is only a burden upon his fate. Such a man has no command over himself and cannot tell when or how to use his power. Well, how can he defeat his third enemy, Don Juan? He has to defy it, deliberately. He has to come to realize the power he has seemingly conquered is in reality never his. He must keep himself in line at all times, handling carefully and faithfully all that he has learned. Thus he will have defeated his third enemy. The man will be by then at the end of his journey of learning, and almost without warning he will come upon the last of his enemies, old age. This enemy is the cruelest of all, the one he won't be able to defeat completely, but only fight away. But if the man sloughs off his tiredness and lives his fate through, he can then be called a man of knowledge, if only for the brief moment when he succeeds in fighting off his last invincible enemy. That moment of clarity, power, and knowledge is enough. Don Juan seldom spoke openly about Mescalito. Every time I questioned him on the subject, he refused to talk, but he always said enough to create an impression of Mescalito, an impression that was always anthropomorphic. Mescalito was a male, not only because of the mandatory grammatical rule that gives the word a masculine gender, but also because of his constant qualities of being a protector and a teacher. Don Juan reaffirmed these characteristics in various forms every time we talked. Friday, July 6, 1962. Don Juan and I started on a trip late in the afternoon of Saturday, June 23rd. He said we were going to look for honguitos, mushrooms, in the state of Chihuahua. He said it was going to be a long, hard trip. He was right. We arrived in a little mining town in northern Chihuahua at 10 p.m. on Wednesday, June 27th. We walked from the place I had parked the car at the outskirts of town to the house of his friends, a Tarahumara Indian and his wife. We slept there. The next morning the man woke us up around 5. 
He brought us gruel and beans. He sat and talked to Don Juan while we ate, but he said nothing concerning our trip. After breakfast, the man put water into my canteen and two sweet rolls into my knapsack. Don Juan handed me the canteen, fixed the knapsack with a cord over his shoulders, thanked the man for his courtesies, and turning to me said, It's time to go. We walked on the dirt road for about a mile. From there we cut through the fields, and in two hours we were at the foot of the hills south of town. We climbed the gentle slopes in a southwesterly direction. When we reached the steeper inclines, Don Juan changed directions, and we followed a high valley to the east. Despite his advanced age, Don Juan kept up a pace so incredibly fast that by midday I was completely exhausted. We sat down and he opened the bread sack. You can eat all of it if you want, he said. How about you? I'm not hungry, and we won't need this food later on. I was very tired and hungry and took him up on his offer. I felt this was a good time to talk about the purpose of our trip, and quite casually I asked, Do you think we're going to stay here for a long time? We are here to gather some mescalito. We will stay until tomorrow. Where is mescalito? All around us. Cacti of many species were growing in profusion all through the area, but I could not distinguish peyote among them. We started to hike again, and by three o'clock we came to a long, narrow valley with steep side hills. I felt strangely excited at the idea of finding peyote, which I had never seen in its natural environment. We entered the valley and must have walked about 400 feet when suddenly I spotted three unmistakable peyote plants. They were in a cluster a few inches above the ground in front of me, to the left of the path. They looked like round, pulpy green roses. I ran toward them, pointing them out to Don Juan. He ignored me and deliberately kept his back turned as he walked away. I knew I had done the wrong thing, and for the rest of the afternoon we walked in silence, moving slowly on the flat valley floor, which was covered with small, sharp-edged rocks. We moved among the cacti, disturbing crowds of lizards and at times a solitary bird, and I passed scores of peyote plants without saying a word. At six o'clock we were at the bottom of the mountains that marked the end of the valley. We climbed to a ledge. Don Juan dropped his sack and sat down. I was hungry again, but we had no food left. I suggested that we pick up the mescalito and head back for town. He looked annoyed and made a smacking sound with his lips. He said we were going to spend the night there. We sat quietly. There was a rock wall to the left, and to the right was the valley we had just crossed. It extended for quite a distance and seemed to be wider then and not so flat as I had thought. Viewed from the spot where I sat, it was full of small hills and protuberances. Tomorrow we will start walking back, Don Juan said without looking at me and pointing to the valley. We will work our way back and pick him as we cross the field. That is, we will pick him only when he is in our way. He will find us and not the other way around. He will find us if he wants to. Don Juan rested his back against the rock wall and with his head turned to his side continued talking as though another person were there besides myself. One more thing. Only I can pick him. You will perhaps carry the bag or walk ahead of me. I don't know yet. But tomorrow you will not point at him as you did today. I'm sorry, Don Juan. It's all right. You didn't know. Don Juan sat motionless facing the peyote field. A steady wind blew on my face. The twilight is the crack between the worlds, he said softly, without turning to me. I didn't ask what he meant. My eyes became tired. Suddenly I felt elated. 
I had a strange, overpowering desire to weep. I lay on my stomach. The rock floor was hard and uncomfortable, and I had to change my position every few minutes. Finally, I sat up and crossed my legs. To my amazement, this position was supremely comfortable, and I fell asleep. When I woke up, I heard Don Juan talking to me. It was very dark. I could not see him well. I did not understand what he said, but I followed him when he started to go down from the ledge. We moved carefully, or at least I did, because of the darkness. We stopped at the bottom of the rock wall. Don Juan sat down and signaled me to sit at his left. He opened up his shirt and took out a leather sack, which he opened and placed on the ground in front of him. It contained a number of dried peyote buttons. After a long pause, he picked up one of the buttons. He held it in his right hand, rubbing it several times between the thumb and the first finger as he chanted softly. Suddenly, he let out a tremendous cry. Ahee! It was weird. Unexpected. It terrified me. Vaguely, I saw him place the peyote button in his mouth and begin to chew it. After a moment, he picked up the whole sack, leaned toward me and told me in a whisper to take the sack, pick out one mescalito, put the sack in front of us again, and then do exactly as he did. I picked a peyote button and rubbed it as he had done. Meanwhile, he chanted, swaying back and forth. I tried to put the button into my mouth several times, but I felt embarrassed to cry out. Then, as if in a dream, an unbelievable shriek came out of me. For a moment, I thought it was someone else. Again, I felt the effects of a nervous shock in my stomach. Don Juan picked up another button and handed me the sack, and the cycle was renewed and repeated until I had chewed 14 buttons. By this time, all my early sensations of thirst, cold, and discomfort had disappeared. In their place, I felt an unfamiliar sense of warmth and excitation. I took the canteen to freshen my mouth, but it was empty. Can we go to the creek, Don Juan? I repeated the question. My voice sounded as though I was talking inside a vault. Don Juan did not answer. I got up and turned in the direction of the creek. I looked at him to see if he was coming, but he seemed to be listening attentively to something. He made an imperative sign with his hand to be quiet. Abutol is already here, he said. I had never heard that word before, and I was wondering whether to ask him about it when I detected a noise that seemed to be a buzzing inside my ears. The sound became louder by degrees until it was like the vibration caused by an enormous bull roarer. It lasted for a brief moment and subsided gradually until everything was quiet again. The violence and the intensity of the noise terrified me. I was shaking so much that I could hardly remain standing, yet I was perfectly rational. If I had been drowsy a few minutes before, this feeling had totally vanished, giving way to a state of extreme lucidity. The noise reminded me of a science fiction movie in which a gigantic bee buzzed its wings coming out of an atomic radiation area. I laughed at the thought. I saw Don Juan slumping back into his relaxed position, and suddenly the image of a gigantic bee accosted me again. It was more real than ordinary thoughts. It stood alone, surrounded by an extraordinary clarity. Everything else was driven from my mind. This state of mental clearness, which had no precedence in my life, produced another moment of terror. I began to perspire. I leaned toward Don Juan to tell him I was afraid. His face was a few inches from mine. He was looking at me, but his eyes were the eyes of a bee. They looked like round glasses that had a light of their own in the darkness. His lips were pushed out, and from them came a pattering noise. 
jumped backward, nearly crashing into the rock wall. For a seemingly endless time I experienced an unbearable fear. I was panting and whining. The perspiration had frozen on my skin, giving me an awkward rigidity. Then I heard Don Juan's voice saying, Get up. Move around. Get up. The image vanished, and again I could see his familiar face. I'll get some water, I said after another endless moment. My voice cracked. I could hardly articulate the words. Don Juan nodded yes. As I walked away, I realized that my fear had gone as fast and as mysteriously as it had come. Upon approaching the creek, I noticed that I could see every object in the way. I remembered I had just seen Don Juan clearly, whereas earlier I could hardly distinguish the outlines of his figure. I stopped and looked into the distance, and I could even see across the valley. Some boulders on the other side became perfectly visible. I thought it must be early morning, but it occurred to me that I might have lost track of time. I looked at my watch. It was ten of twelve. I checked the watch to see if it was working. It couldn't be midday. It had to be midnight. I intended to make a dash for the water and come back to the rocks, but I saw Don Juan coming down and I waited for him. I told him I could see in the dark. He stared at me for a long time without saying a word. If he did speak, perhaps I did not hear him, for I was concentrating on my new, unique ability to see in the dark. I could distinguish the very minute pebbles in the sand. At moments everything was so clear it seemed to be early morning or dusk. Then it would get dark. Then it would clear again. Soon I realized that the brightness corresponded to my heart's diastole and the darkness to its systole. The world changed from bright to dark to bright again with every beat of my heart. I was absorbed in this discovery when the same strange sound that I had heard before became audible again. My muscles stiffened. Anuchtal, as I heard the word this time, is here, Don Juan said. I fancied the roar so thunderous, so overwhelming that nothing else mattered. When it had subsided, I perceived a sudden increase in the volume of water. The creek, which a minute before had been less than a foot wide, expanded until it was an enormous lake. Light that seemed to come from above it touched the surface as though shining through thick foliage. From time to time the water would glitter for a second, gold and black. Then it would remain dark, lightless, almost out of sight, and yet strangely present. I don't recall how long I stayed there just watching, squatting on the shore of the black lake. The roar must have subsided in the meanwhile, because what jolted me back to reality was again a terrifying buzzing. I turned around to look for Don Juan. I saw him climbing up and disappearing behind the rock ledge. Yet the feeling of being alone did not bother me at all. I squatted there in a state of absolute confidence and abandonment. The roar again became audible. It was very intense, like the noise made by a high wind. Listening to it as carefully as I could, I was able to detect a definite melody. It was a composite of high-pitched sounds, like human voices accompanied by a deep bass drum. I focused all my attention on the melody and again noticed that the systole and diastole of my heart coincided with the sound of the bass drum and with the pattern of the music. I stood up and the melody stopped. I tried to listen to my heartbeat, but it was not detectable. I squatted again, thinking that perhaps the position of my body had caused or induced the sounds, but nothing happened, not a sound, not even my heart. I thought I had had enough. But as I stood up to leave, I felt a tremor of the earth. The ground under my feet was shaking. I was losing my balance. I fell backwards and remained on my back while the earth shook violently. 
I tried to grab a rock or a plant, but something was sliding under me. I jumped up, stood for a moment, and fell down again. The ground on which I sat was moving, sliding into the water like a raft. I remained motionless, stunned by a terror that was like everything else, unique, uninterrupted, and absolute. And with that, I am afraid we are about out of time for this show. So I would like to thank you all again for allowing me to share this part of my life with you. And I would be honored if you would join me next week at the same time and station. If you would like to email me with uh, questions or suggestions, you can reach me at my website, www.theshamansbrew.com or by email, marcus at theshamansbrew.com. Also, if you own a radio station and you would like to rebroadcast this show or add it to your lineup, then please email me for information on where to download the high-quality stream. This is Marcus Leader, and you have been listening to The Shaman's Brew on Jackalope 105 FM on the Jackalope Media Network. <laughs>